Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Shivivani. As regular listeners to Raise the Line know, the education tech sector has been on fire as COVID has forced the world to reckon with online learning on a massive scale. Our guest today, Ashwin Demera, has witnessed the frenzy firsthand as CEO of Eruditus-Emeritus, which makes Ivy League education accessible and affordable to executives around the world. Partners include 50 top-tier universities such as MIT, Harvard, Cambridge, and Columbia. The company just raised $650 million and has begun moving into the K-12 space. And before we get started with the interview, I'd love to give a quick shout out to two of our advisors at Osmosis, Ahmed Haik and Jamie Farrell, who are now both on Ashwin's team. Uh, as well as Raniel Hirath, who runs the Emeritus Health field within Emeritus. So, Ashwin, I'd like to really thank you for taking the time to be with us today. Thanks for the opportunity. Looking forward to this conversation. So I know a lot about your background and story as a fellow HBS alum, uh, graduated in 2005. But for our audience, in your own words, can you tell us a bit about your journey and what got you to start Emeritus in the first place? Yeah, I... Always like to say that I am a first generation entrepreneur. I don't come from a family of entrepreneurs or even for that matter, business people. And so, you know, I finished my education, undergrad in India. I was a chartered accountant, went to Citigroup, knew I didn't want to become a banker. uh, And so decided to go to an MBA. Harvard Business School was nice enough to have me. Uh, And that that actually changed my uh, life because I realized at business school that I really wanted to be an entrepreneur. And I had a couple of my classmates write me a first check, $100,000 to get me going. And more importantly, uh, at Harvard Business School's business plan contest in 2005, which by the way, seems like it's ages ago, uh, we came runners up. And you know there was this moment where I said, oh, maybe I'm onto something, maybe I can actually do this. And then there was a dilemma because I could have also gone to McKinsey, worked in New York, uh, a city I love, uh, or come back to India and start Travel Guru, which was the name of my first startup. And that decision was a tough one, but in hindsight, perhaps the right one. And so that led to my first startup. Uh, and you know, as a rookie entrepreneur, I made all of the mistakes that I was taught in business school not to do and had read in many, many books, but you know, you don't learn unless you kind of do it the hard way, I suppose. So as a second time entrepreneur with Eruditis and Emeritus, I can say that you know, it's funny, I think I work less, I stress less, but there's a much larger business today and a much larger opportunity to build something uh, enduring in the future. But I think all of the lessons of my first startup are, have kind of been plowed back into my second one. So that's been the journey. You know, we are in the tech space, uh, which, like you said, is seeing a lot of uh, excitement in the last few months. But I would say our mission is the most important part of what we do. Our mission is to make high quality education, accessible and affordable. You know, you and I have been fortunate. We could have perhaps packed our bags, you know, gone to Harvard Business School or other top institutions. I had debt at the end of that uh, two-year master's program, which took some time to pay off. But most people in the world can't afford that. And even if they can, many of them can't get in. And so how can we make that quality education accessible to people? This may be the largest social problem that our generation deals with, skilling, upskilling, reskilling, uh, and so on and so forth. So that's what the company does. That's what I'm passionate about. And I suppose that's what we'll talk about for the next few minutes. 
Yeah. And so, uh, you know, speaking of lessons learned before we dive right into, into the work that you do at Emeritus and Eruditus and how that's changed, what are some of those core lessons you've learned? Uh, I know there's probably countless of them, but the first one or two that come to mind. There are many. And by the way, since we can't talk about all of them, there's a book, I think it's called Founder's Dilemma, that an HBS professor, Noam Wasserman, I think, which I suggest anybody who's looking to start up, before you start up, read that book. And basic stuff like, you know, should you have a founder's agreement? If you have two founders, should you split equity 50-50 or is there some other way? That, what if one founder leaves and so on and so forth? But I think the success of the startup to a great extent is influenced by the first 10 people uh, at the table and especially a co-founder. In my first startup, you know, we had a lot of issues with co-founders. But in my second, I was fortunate to work with Chaitanya, who is my co-founder. And I can say that we complement each other very well. There are moments when the stress levels are high, but one calms the other down. Usually it's him calming me down because I get more stress and he's very calm, but that's complimentary. But you also need somebody who is like your midnight buddy. You can pick up the phone and talk to and say, hey, this problem, how do we solve this? And if that's a co-founder, that's great. So the first 10 people who you hire, really think about fit, values. That's very, very important if you're trying to build something that's really long-term. The second piece of advice is you know, unit economics. I think, again, Professor Bill Solomon, Harvard Business School said this, the best form of fundraising is from customers, not from venture capitalists. And so if you can build a product or a service that actually has product market fit from get-go, which is difficult, not always possible, but if you can, the proof of that will be paying customers. And then you'll be able to grow your business without you know, raising a lot of capital. And of course, if you do raise capital, you're raising it for growth and expansion versus just kind of staying afloat. And so think very carefully about that, you know, getting money from customers. And by the way, when you get paying customers, it does tell you that your product has value. I'm a big believer in that. You can build a large freemium base or a free base. And many companies do that. Very few really are able to monetize that into dollars. So thinking about paying customers, I think is an important lesson for startups to figure out early on in their journey. Yeah, those are some wonderful lessons and take me back to Aldrich Hall with both uh, Taking Founders Lemma and, and hearing Bill Solomon speak. You know, so why we launched the RaiseLine podcast was because of the COVID pandemic and how different fields, healthcare, government, education are totally being disrupted. You guys were obviously growing very quickly even before COVID and then the pandemic hit. Can you talk to us a bit about how you responded to COVID, both in terms of what your company does, but also your organization as a company itself. While we're talking, you're in India, and I know Ranil is here in Chicago. It's a truly a global company, it seems. Yeah, Ahmed is in New York, Jamie is in uh, Florida, and we have people all over. I often joke by saying we're all over the place, but in a good way. The pandemic for the first few months was very confusing, was worrying. We were like, oh my God, what is going on? Obviously, uh, attention focused on the health and safety for people. Even today, we are working from home remotely uh, in most places in the world. I think good fortune, all of our people are well and safe. So that, that's the first thing. From the business side, a fundamental shift has happened. Shift, and I think it's perhaps here to stay. It's at two levels. Right? One is, you know, there was always a question on the demand side, which is, is there something pure about classroom learning and something that's not so pure about online learning? And... Now, the word online means many things to many different people. There are some bad examples of online and some great examples of online. But what we've seen in the last 12 to 18 months, perhaps, is that from, say, a six-year-old child to maybe even an 80-year-old person, everybody is online and learning, right? 
And so the myth that you can't learn, you can't retain information, that the pedagogy is not effective, to a great extent has been busted. Look, there are definitely use cases where the classroom pedagogy is better, but I think the belief that online is somehow subpar, significantly subpar, I think that has gone away. And so that's a great opportunity for players like us where you know, 100% of what we do is online. But I think more importantly for us, is that we used to have a very difficult time convincing faculty and universities to put more of their courses online, right? It's a lot of work because unlike a Coursera or an edX, we actually have a three to six month design process with the faculty. We're creating content with them. We are filming for them. We're doing post-production, et cetera. So it's a lot of work. And you know, for them, it was, hey, is it worth it? Yeah. Is it gonna be as effective? And all of those questions, right? But again, Given what has happened because of the pandemic, they've been teaching online, even in their master's and undergrad programs. And so there's a much greater receptivity in academia to do things online today, which is great because our problem as a business was not that there are not enough students to teach. It was we didn't have enough courses. And so this really has helped kind of boost the supply side. And that's kind of why we are growing as fast as we are. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I'm glad you mentioned Coursera, you know, to you edX. Uh, we've had Jeff and Chip and a number of those on our podcast as well. It seems like companies are trying to do some of the same things across the cycle, right? Ranging from the MOOCs, which were very hyped a decade ago, and then sort of fell away, but now have resurged now that they have longer form courses, certificates and degree programs that are high margin kind of products, but relatively low volume. Um, to your point about freemium, where you can get a bunch of free people on your site, but the question is, can you actually get them to pay for it and see the value enough? You know, how do you differentiate both for the learners as well as for the institutions now that there's several other large, you know, multi-billion dollar companies knocking on the doors of Johns Hopkins and Penn and MIT and those kind of places? Great question. Look, the first thing I would like to say is our mission is to make high quality education accessible and affordable. So I actually think it's welcome if there are many players trying to solve that exact same problem because no one player can solve that. It's too big a problem. It's not just a problem in, in the United States. It's a problem in India and in Latin America and Southeast Asia, Africa, China, everywhere in the world. So no one person can solve it. Now, our approach is not a MOOC model, which is massive open online courses. It's a Spark model, small private online courses. So even if we have 500 students in a specific course, we'll break them down into cohorts of maybe 75. Each cohort will have a learning facilitator assigned to that cohort. Within that cohort, there may be groups of five or six. If you submit an assignment, you'll get feedback. There's live interaction with faculty during the course. So I, it's high touch online and it leads to 85% completion. 90% of the students say that the learning outcomes were met. Many of our courses provide career services or coaching or mentoring as a layer. So it's really kind of the education you would get if you were in a classroom setting, but it's done in a virtual environment. Right? And th I think that's very different from uh, MOOC. And so the student who comes to us is a little more serious. Look, the MOOCs would have about 150 million, 200 million enrollments or registered users but most of them are just looking for a content repository or a library, right? I could take an AI course. Let's say it's Andrew NG's AI course. I'm never going to finish it, but I'm just curious. So, hey, I just go through the first week and, you know, drop out after that. But it's not a problem because I never intended to finish. I'm a casual learner, right? But what we do is for the most serious learner, somebody who really wants to get their hands dirty and learn digital marketing, learn the Google, the Facebook tools, 
we will put them through simulations and assessments and all of those things. At the end of it, they should be able to run an effective Google Facebook campaign. So it's really skill building versus just kind of content dissemination is the way I would think of the fundamental difference. So more serious learners who are willing to invest the time and the money for a measurable learning outcome, a measurable career outcome is the space we play in. On the university side, again, we are going after more serious learners. The universities understand that. But our model of partnership is very different from a Coursera, right? I think they work with maybe 500 or 600 partners. We work with much smaller numbers, about 50 partners as of today. And we try and work more deeply with them and also provide them with a 360 solution. Like, for example, with the Coursera, I think the universities have to create the courses themselves and put it on the platform. But no, we get involved in the design from get-go. We actually sit down with the faculty. They have great ideas. They have great content. They are the intellectual powerhouses. But how do we take that offline kind of pedagogy and translate it online? Do we need to add some simulation, some role plays? So we get involved in that process because we know that when you design courses for working professionals and you want high learning outcomes, you have to design them in a certain methodical and structured way. So we have a theory of dominant design when it comes to online education, and we would love to do that with our schools. So very different in the engagement model, more high touch here as well, and more deeply engaged with our partners. That's great. Um, that makes a lot of sense and certainly is a good way to differentiate your service offering. And those are remarkable completion stats and net promoter scores you were just sharing. You know, you started out of business school and digital marketing courses, those kind of things. I know Raniel and I have spoken a bit about where you all want to go with healthcare offerings. Given that our audience are primarily current or future healthcare professionals who are raising the line, improving healthcare access, we'd love to hear what are your thoughts on the healthcare ecosystem, both for education as well as how healthcare as a field is changing now because of COVID. Yeah, it's a great question, and I wouldn't claim to be an expert on that, but we look at all of these sectors, right? So yes, we started with business schools, and then we work with engineering schools. And as we think about the professional schools, obviously the medical schools, so healthcare, public health, nursing, but also, you know, we, we will do other areas. But the problem statement shift in some sense is similar to all of these, right? which is what's happening at a macro level, at an industry level. Because of the digital disruption, every single industry in healthcare is not any different, is being transformed significantly, right? And so what that means is that professionals at various levels have to add on skills to their repertoire. What are these skills, right? So this is stuff like analytics, right? So a lot of the healthcare problems today will be solved through big data and through data science. Digital transformation skills, right? Uh, we talk a lot about fintech, but there's a whole area on health tech and you know, whether it's digital you know, imaging and technologies, but also digital adoption for delivery systems, right? By the way, the analytics piece has a bunch of stuff to do with patient data. You know, there's a stuff around privacy and et cetera. So you get into cybersecurity and a bunch of these things. And so no industry has been spared from the onslaught of digital and impact of that. Healthcare is no different. And yet, if you think back, how much of this is actually taught in, say, medical schools or when, you, when somebody actually you know, becomes a nurse or a doctor or any other form of a health practitioner, how much of these skills are actually taught? And that's, by the way, the same case with business school or engineering or any other school. And so what we are trying to say is, look, there's a large reskilling market for healthcare professionals. 
And that doesn't mean you need to go leave your job and do a full-time program or necessarily get a master's or a doctorate or whatever that is. Could you do that while being employed, while earning? So learning while earning. And that's the opportunity that we are trying to also go after for healthcare professionals. And look, we work with many universities that have fantastic medical schools. So we work with Harvard Business School, but Harvard Medical School, we create create a program with them on digital transformation healthcare, which interestingly, the first one was offered in Spanish. And so those kind of collaborations are things that we're exploring so that we can really bring the intellectual capital from these universities to the upskilling, reskilling problem in healthcare. That makes a lot of sense. And we've had several leaders of health systems and hospitals on the podcast who talk about the need to train leaders um, and how quickly things are changing even underneath them. So we're speaking just a couple of days after Amazon announced that they would be providing free college tuition to their full-time employees and highly subsidized to their part-time employees. This is definitely a trend we're seeing where institutions have had learning and development offices that subsidize or pay for professional development one of our advisors at Osmosis is Aaron Scotter, who's the co-founder and CEO of Pluralsight. And we were just talking the other day about how that business began 100% B2C, where the end users would come to them and purchase, and now is majority B2B, you know, selling it to Facebook and Microsoft and those kind of companies. Where do you see this shaking out? Like, where is it right now, just roughly? And then where do you see it shaking out over the next, say, five or 10 years? We are predominantly B2C, but we are making deeper inroads in B2B as a course catalog has expanded. But if you look at professional education more broadly at an industry level, it's two thirds is enterprise and one third is consumer. I think post pandemic, it's a tight labor market. So many companies, including Amazon, Walmart for that matter, and many others are going into this uh, pay for the education kind of a policy, which I think is welcome. And most of them are doing it for frontline workers, so blue collar more than white collar, which is, I think does show that employers do care about you know, the learning of their people. And but it comes back to this problem, which is the biggest social problem of our time is the reskilling and upskilling of workforces. Right? They take large industries. Retail is a great example. And you'll see it in construction. You'll see it in manufacturing. You'll see it in all of these traditional industries, being, even banking and financial services. A lot of that is being disrupted by these new age skills. And so, look, the enterprise piece is interesting, but ultimately, the, the way I like to think about it is there is a skill gap, right? The learner who is professional needs to feel it and needs to value a course or some learning that helps them close that skill gap. It's then incidental whether they pay for it, whether they pay for it and the employer reimburses it or the employer pays for it or somebody else subsidizes it like an association or a government. But if your content, you have the courses you have are actually addressing and solving a skill gap, there's value. Somebody will pay for it. Yeah, totally. It's just about the mechanism to get there. So what are your hopes for the company in the next, say, five years? Uh, Obviously, you just raised this massive round, are making a lot more courses and and partnerships, expanding these other verticals, including K-12. You know, where do you see Emeritus slash Eruditus by 2025? That's a great question, right? The future is so bright, shifts so bright that I can't even see it. But I'm just kidding. The last 12 months did about, we enrolled about 100,000 students for our various courses through our university partners. I like to believe that that is impact because we've touched 100,000 lives. And so my first goal for five years would be, could we make that 1 million lives? Right? So 10X that over the next five years. I don't know whether we'll do it. I think there's an opportunity because if you think about just the gaps, 
and the number of people that need to be retrained over the next five years, it's huge. So I'm hopeful that we can do it. But that's really the first goal. From that kind of ambition will flow revenue numbers, people, you know, courses and all of that. But the real big, Harry audacious goal is can we touch 1 million students in 2025? That would be the big ambition. That's awesome. That's you know, similar, I mean, we obviously operate at a very different scale. We don't do long form courses and, and cohort based courses, but uh, our big Harry audacious goal is educate a billion people by 2025. And that includes, you know, if you have a child or a parent who has asthma or diabetes, watching one of our videos on asthma or diabetes, we have 2 million YouTube subscribers. So we're, you know, 2% of the way there in terms of just subscribers, but in terms of people who viewed it, we're, we're much further along. So that's ambitious. I'm sure you guys can get there. You have the right people around you. Uh, I know we're coming up in time. So the last two questions I have are, are first, what advice would you give to young people today about pursuing their careers, whether in healthcare or in education or just in general? I mean, that's a very broad question. Let me just say one thing, which is how people think and worry about failure. Many people have asked me, hey, what makes you successful as an entrepreneur? And that's, by the way, true. What makes you successful in anything that you do? Right? It's not just entrepreneur. Like if I want to do cycling and you know, do achieve something there, what makes somebody successful? And, and my simple answer is, I tried. That's it. And if you don't even try, you're never going to be successful. So the only piece of advice I give people is, especially those who want to be entrepreneur, whatever space they want to be entrepreneur in, is you know, you got to go and you got to try. And if it doesn't work out, that's not failure. That's learning. And as a young professional, you are much better served getting that kind of a lesson, that kind of a learning early in your career versus later. My first startup, by any definition, was not a success. But for me, it was massive learning. That is the foundation on which my second startup, which is Erudite and Emeritus, was built. But it was much better that I got that experience early in my career because then you learn a lot and then you can use learning. So that's the one piece of advice I can give. You know, I find it funny giving advice because look, we're all learning here. Right? We're all still making mistakes and figuring things out as we go. I've never run a company this big and I don't think I would want to do it again because this is perhaps the last um, you know, startup. It's been a fun journey. So we're all learning stuff. You know, be outwardly ambitious. Try and do great things. Like you're saying a billion learners on osmosis. That's fantastic. But be modest in turn. At the end of the day, when I'm done with all of that, shut my laptop. Look, we are just doing our best, like everybody else. You got to have that sense of humbleness or humility, uh, and take life as it comes. Those are just perhaps two things that I can share. Yeah, that's really wonderful advice. My last question is: Is there anything else you want our audience to know about you, uh, Emeritus Eruditus, or anything else in general? Well, you know, I, I can say a few things. One is, you know, the whole uh, idea of skilling, reskilling, upskilling. Uh, I think we are in an knowledge economy in the real sense. Like the real competitive advantage has now moved from nations, from industries to now the labor force to individual skills. And so today, if I can learn you know, a specific skills, for example, if I can get better at business analytics or digital transformation, I'm probably gonna be better at my job and have a better career than if I stay kind of with what I have and don't add any skills to my repertoire. And so one thing I would urge everybody to think about is, look, what got you here is not going to get you there. And this is true at a country level, this is true at a business level, this is true at an individual level. But I'm most interested in individual level because I'm interested in what I can do to change myself first and then worry about other things. So I have to ask myself, and I think every one of us have to ask ourselves, 
what do I need to do more of? What do I need to do less of? And what do I need to stop doing? And just thinking in that sense is the only competitive advantage that we as individuals and as professionals have. That's why what I do at Emeritus and Emeritus is fun because that's what we teach people. But even beyond taking a course, you know, it's useful uh, for all of us to think in that fashion. That's awesome. And that reminds me of something my professor at HBS, Josh Margolis, my lead professor, said. Oh, my lead professor. What a fantastic professor. That's awesome. So yeah, I don't know if you got that framework or if he helped teach you that, but keep, stop, start. We always used to do that when we were doing retros. The one thing that Josh made us all do at the end of the class, I don't know if he did this with you as well. He said, look, what is this one line motto that you want to live your life on? And, you know, write it down and keep it with you. And I said, life is to give. Uh, and I feel that through this journey at Eruditis and Emeritus and by teaching, by helping universities teach more people and change lives, it is giving, which is what makes it a lot uh, fulfillment and fun. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Well, Ashwin, thanks so much for taking the time to be with me on the podcast and more importantly for the work that you're doing to reskill and upskill people all around the world. Thank you, Shiv. This was a fun uh, experience. Thank you for having me. Great. And with that, I'm Shiv Gulani. Thank you to our audience for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. Take care. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast. <laughs>